in your Bibles to Romans. Romans chapter 1, we'll start with Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we'll start with. I don't think you hear these words much in court nowadays, but often courts used to be started with the words, Hear ye! Hear ye, court is now in session. <laughs> uh, I don't normally go to court, but I haven't heard those words in recent years. But Paul could have used those very powerful words in Romans 1, verse 18. If you have a Bible like mine, you'll see verse 18 is in bold. And that's helpful because it helps you to know it's starting a new paragraph. Romans 18 starts with these powerful words, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Well, Paul could have used the words, Hear ye, hear ye, court is now in session there in Romans 1.18. Because Romans 1.18 is, is literally the door that leads us into God's courtroom. The theme of Romans, uh, if you're not familiar with this, is the righteousness of God. But Paul had to begin with the unrighteousness of mankind before establishing the truth of the righteousness of God. Now why would the Holy Spirit start a wonderful book on the gospel with this horrible subject of sin? We don't like talking about sin. We like to think, you know, dwell upon the wonderful truth of Christ's resurrection and Christ our atonement. Christ, you know, we love to talk about heaven and, and glorification and eternity and that sort of thing. But that's not where Paul begins the gospel. Now, why would the Holy Spirit start a book on the gospel with a horrible subject of sin? The answer is, well, one reason would be because, because until man knows that he is a sinner and that he is a sinner by birth, and he is an alien at birth, he is a, an enemy of God, you and I cannot appreciate the gracious salvation that God offers to us in Jesus Christ. The good news is not good news without the bad news first. And that's why we start here. That's why the Holy Spirit starts here. And in the book of the Romans, the Apostle Paul followed the the basic Bible pattern that you see over and over again, it starts with first law and condemnation, and then you get grace and salvation. Do you understand that, my friends? It, the gospel must start with law and condemnation, then you get grace and salvation. And so in this section here, starting in Romans 1.18, going all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, God makes three declarations that, that, that prove to us that all men are sinners and we need Jesus Christ. So you think about this. Someone who is dying, who needs to be saved, is not going to call out for salvation, is not going to call out for help until they realize they need help. And that's why God starts with showing us that this, this truth here that we are all guilty. 
we all stand condemned before a holy God. And, and we're not going to take the time to look at all of chapter 1 and chapter 2, so let me just point out to you, because we're going to look at chapter, part of chapter 3, a, a paragraph in chapter 3 today, and I'm going to skip over chapter 1 and 2, because essentially you're going to get the same argument from the Holy Spirit in chapter 1 and 2 and 3. It's just they're, they're a different audience, if you will. In chapter, uh, let me just show you this. In chapter 1, starting in verse 18 all the way to uh, verse 32, essentially Paul's argument as he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is this, that the Gentile world is guilty. The Gentile world, and that's everybody who isn't a Hebrew, stands guilty before a holy God. We are condemned because of our sin. And then Paul makes the point in chapter 2, verse 1, all the way to chapter 3, verse 8, that the Jewish world is guilty. And then we're going to look at chapter 3 today, and we're going to see in chapter 3, starting in verse 9, all the way to verse 20 here, the point that the Holy Spirit wants us to see is that the whole world is guilty. Nobody is left out of this picture. We all stand before God's court and we are condemned before the righteous judge of the universe. The problem is, as we look at this, the, you know, our human nature strongly resists this truth, right? We do not like this truth. We resist it. And listen to how Dr. Donald Barnhouse said it. He says it well, quote, It is only stubborn self-pride that keeps man from the confession to God that would bring release. But that way he refuses to take. Man stands before God today like a little boy who swears with crying and tears that he has not been anywhere near the jam jar and who with an air of outraged innocence pleads the justice of his position in total ignorance of the fact that a good spoonful of jam has fallen on his shirt under his chin and is plainly visible to all but himself, end quote. I love that story. That's a great way to put it. We're all like that. We all got jam on our shirts. You, know, you got this big piece of jam here. Uh, me? No, Mommy, I wasn't in the jam. Well, we are. We've been. We're guilty. We stand guilty for a God who sees all and knows all. In Romans 3, 1 through 8, Paul summed up the argument here, and he refuted those Jews who tried to debate with him. They raised three questions. And you can see those in, in Romans 3, 1 through 8. In verse 1, what advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the prophet of circumcision? <laughs> That's the first question they bring up. And the reply the Holy Spirit brings is every advantage. Especially because the Jews possess the word of God. The word of God came primarily through them. The, question, the second question is, will Jewish unbelief cancel God's faithfulness? Will Jewish unbelief cancel God's faithfulness? The reply is, absolutely not, the Holy Spirit says. In fact, their unbelief establishes God's faithfulness. The third question, well, is this. If our sin condemns uh, or commends his righteousness, how can he judge us then? And God's reply is, we will, do, we will not do evil that good may come of it. God judges the world righteously. And that's what you see in verses uh, 1 through 8. So Paul, throughout the book of Romans, takes the catechism approach of teaching. If 
you're not familiar with catechism, you ought to know uh, you ought to know a catechism. I encourage you to do so, memorize them, know them well, but uh, teach them to your children. That used to be the way uh, parents and churches used to do that all the time. Sadly, it's fallen on the wayside, but, but essentially you take a question, for example, the one that we all know about because I've told you over and over again, what is the chief end of mankind? To glorify God by enjoying him forever. Okay? That's a catechism. And Paul essentially does that here throughout the book of Romans, asking all these questions and then, and then answering them. And so as we look at these verses here, I want you to note, as we're going to start in verse 9 here, note the constant repetition of words. You ought to always take note when God, the Holy Spirit, is, is uh, repeating something. It's an emphasis that he wants you to get. And in verses 9 through 20, you're going to see words such as none, no, not one, over and over again in this section. So the point is this, my friends, that not a single member of Adam's ruined race is accepted. None of us are accepted. We're all ruined. We are all totally corrupt. And so the indictment here is is sweeping. It's comprehensive. It's all-inclusive. No one is left out. That's the point of those words, none and no, not one. The Holy Spirit begins here by reviewing both the, uh, the racial and the religious aspects of, of human sin. Let's look at the first one here. We see that race does not change the fact that we are sinners. Uh, Jews like to bring up the fact of their race often, that they were God's chosen people, but nobody can use race as an excuse for their sin before a holy God. Now look at verse 9, chapter 3, verse 9. No one can use race as an excuse. Look at verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? You can ask the question, are we better? Or are we better off? Not at all, the Holy Spirit says, for we have uh, previously charged both Jews and Greeks, that's Jews and everybody else, that we are all under sin. Do you see that, my friends? We are all under sin. That leaves nobody out of the picture. None. So all people are on the same footing before God here when it, when it comes to the matter of sin. We're all sinners by choice and by birth. Jew and Gentile, whether you're an Asian or a Western, whether your skin is red or yellow, black and white, there is no difference before God. We are all sinners. Everyone is a sinner in God's sight. So race doesn't change the fact that we're sinners, and neither does your religion for that fact. Look at... Uh, uh, we're going to see this over and over again here, but uh, there, there's three verses I want, I want you to look at here that, that highlights this truth. That there's a very detailed list of items in God's indictment here against us who are sinners. And each one of these phrases we're going to look at from, from verse 10 all the way down to verse 18. If you have a Bible like mine, it, it makes it look a little different from the other verses. Do you see that? And the reason your Bible's doing that, is because all of those verses are coming from the Old Testament. Each one of those phrases comes from a different verse in the Old Testament, and I've put that Old Testament reference up on the screen here for you so you can see where they're coming from. So here's the indictment coming from God to us. First of all, that all people are unrighteous. All people are unrighteous. Look at verse 10. As it is written, in the Old Testament that is, there is none righteous No, not one. That's coming from Psalm 14, verse 3. So God, the Holy Spirit here, is saying that all people are incapable by our very nature 
of doing that which is right in the sight of God. Our nature. It's our nature that's the problem, my friends. Uh, many people think their behavior is right, and, and it may be according to human standards. You may think you're doing right according to you know, someone else's standards, but, but God does not try us by our standards, does he? What is God's standard? It is his own righteousness and holiness. So he tries us by his own standards of absolute perfection. What does the Bible say? We have fallen short of what? What have we fallen short of? Romans says, of God's glory. We have missed the mark, literally, of God's absolute perfection. And so it's easy for us to compare ourselves with other people, right? We, we can all find somebody, you know, better off than, or worse off than we are. And, but that's not who we're to compare ourselves to, right? We are to compare ourselves to Jesus Christ. He is the one we are to compare ourselves to. And, and, and as we do that, as we look at the life and, and the heart and the mind of Christ, it's going to show us just how crooked and defiled our lives really are. If you look at your family member or your workmate or your neighbor or someone else, well then... Well, then you're going to say, oh, you know, I'm not that bad. But if you look at Christ, you're going to say, oh, wow, I fall way short. I've got a long, long, long ways to go. And so the Bible says, none is, none is righteous, no, not one. The second indictment here in verse 11, all people are spiritually ignorant. All people are spiritually ignorant. Look, look at verse 11. There is none who understands. There is none who understands. The point is we are spiritually ignorant. What does that mean? What does it mean to be spiritually ignorant? Well, let's use Scripture to help explain itself to us here, okay? Scripture is its best commentary. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14 says this. The natural man, or the, the, the one who is without Christ, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, you need the Holy Spirit to discern the scriptures, to understand salvation. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit residing within you, guess what? You're not a Christian. Now, please don't get the Bible wrong here. There is a lot of evidence that people have brilliant intellects, right? I mean, the people who come up with the internet and things like Google and Facebook and, you know, who are people who are engineers and rocket scientists and the list goes on and on and, you know, brain surgeons and these kind of people, are, they're amazing, wonderful intellects that God has given to them. But yet at the same time, it, it, it's, their, their intellect is strangely clouded by, uh, to, to the spiritual realities of the Bible. Someone who is incredibly brilliant, let's take a brain surgeon for example, can be totally lost spiritually. They don't understand the simple truths of the gospel often. So damage done by sin runs deep into the very roots of the thinking process. For example, well, our imaginations are often filthy. Our memories often betray us. Our reasoning is often false and our conclusions are often wrong. Why is that? Because we need spiritual discernment from the Holy Spirit. Now, on the things that matter most, mankind, the Bible says, is blind. We are spiritually blind. We are spiritually ignorant. We, and without the Holy Spirit's enablement, we have no hope. Now, what doesn't the natural person understand? Because the Bible says the natural person doesn't understand. 
what, what is it that we don't understand? Well, the Bible says the things of the Spirit of God. Now, it doesn't mean that, that, uh, that there, there's not intelligent people out there. That's not what God is saying here. But when it comes to the things of the Spirit of God, then they are blind and, and ignorant to those things. For example, mankind does not understand how repulsive their sin is to God. Talk to an unsaved person, and a lot of times they think they're good. Are you a good person? Oh, yeah. I've done a lot of good things. Uh, a lot of times they don't understand how holy God is. As we looked at last week in Isaiah 6, remember Isaiah, even he himself didn't understand exactly how holy God is and how sinful he was. And when he finally realized that, what did he do? He cried out that God is holy and that I am unclean and I live amongst the people who are unclean. A lot of people don't understand what lies ahead in eternity. They're only living for the here and now. They do not understand at what cost that God has provided for their very salvation. They're ignorant of that wonderful truth. They're spiritually ignorant. And if they understood those things, what would they do? Would they stay in their ignorance? No. They would rush to be saved, wouldn't they, if they understood the truth that we see in Scripture? But they don't see it. The third indictment, all people ignore God. Look at the second part of verse 11. There is none who seeks after God. Psalm 14, verse 2. People are ignorant. So the question arises, well, how can this be possible in view of the fact that around our world, there's all kinds of you know, the pagan lands around us that are just filled with temples and worshipers? How can you say this? How can the Bible say this? Well, the Bible gives the answer in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 20. Here's what the Bible says. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. So why are there all, a lot of churches and, and, and temples and, and mosques around the world today and worshipers in them? Because they're not worshiping God. They're worshiping Satan and themselves and demons. But you ask, well, if we naturally ignore God, then how can anyone be saved? John 6, verse 44 answers that question. No one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's how you come to the Father, through Jesus. Ken Weiss points out that the word here in our Bibles for seek speaks of a determined search after something. It's a determined search. Somebody who, who is intently looking, almost like a, with, a, with a magnifying glass or, or, or you know, binoculars or something, you know, most people tend to accept their religious convictions, don't they? Uh, those of you who have been going with, uh, with me and, and going around distributing the Bibles around our neighborhood here, you, you ask them, you know, would you like a Bible? A lot of people aren't interested in Bibles. Uh, you know, so do you go to church? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, I go to the Anglican church or once in a while to the Catholic church. They're just kind of content with their convictions, aren't they? And so it's true that... that you know, there are some people out there who shop around from one religious system to another until they find something that kind of better suits their religious taste. But apart from the drawing and the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, well, they're just going to end up in just another brand of delusion, aren't they? So praise God, God has taken the initiative for us, because if he hadn't, we would have no hope. Luke 19, verse 10 
says this, For the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came to seek and to save the lost. Praise God for that. And so it's significant that the Bible compares us, who are people, compares us to sheep. I encourage you, observe sheep. Meditate upon sheep. The Bible talks a lot about sheep, so you, you, it'd be helpful you to, for you to do that. And why does the Bible compare us to sheep? Because a sheep is an animal, quite frankly, which is not very smart. I know that's, that might be a bit insulting to some of you, but remember, that's God's comparison, not mine. Uh, but, you know, not very strong. They have no power to seek the shepherd after they've strayed away. They often get themselves in trouble. In fact, uh, uh, last, last year when I was out hunting turkeys, I actually saw a sheep that had his, his head stuck in a gate. He couldn't get himself out. His, I don't know how he got his head in there, but his head was in this, in this little narrow gate. He couldn't get it out. He's, trying to, he's beating his head against this gate, trying to get his head out, because as I was getting closer to him, he's freaking out. And if it wasn't for me lifting up the gate, the sheep would have died. And, and that's just the way we are. We, we're hopeless. We are literally hopeless, and that's why God compares us to sheep. We don't seek the shepherd. The shepherd has to seek us. And so mankind is so unresponsive to God that all the initiative in salvation has to be on God's side. Well, what, what initiative has God shown, you might ask? Well, God has given us, first of all, he gave us his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has given us the scriptures. He's given us the Holy Spirit. Well, how do most people respond to the Son and the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit? What do most people do? They ignore God. They do exactly what Romans talks about. There is none who seeks after God. So it truly can be said that the natural person does not seek after God. The fourth indictment, all people are naturally unrepentant. Look at verse 12. They have, tur- they have all turned aside. They have all turned aside. Now, turned aside there, those two words, has the basic meaning of leaning in the wrong direction. In the military context, uh, this, this particular Greek word was used to refer to a soldier who is running in the wrong direction. The commander or captain or general says, charge, and instead of the soldier charging, he runs the other direction. That's, that's this word here, turned aside. It speaks of the universal human inclination to go against God's way, which is exactly what Isaiah talks about. Isaiah wrote about this in Isaiah 53, 6. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. That's what we do. That's the natural inclination. We are sheep. The fifth indictment, all people are spiritually worthless They have together become unprofitable, the Bible says in verse 12. Well, here's what John MacArthur said, I quote, The Hebrew equivalent of the Greek term translated here as worthless or useless was often used to describe milk that had turned sour and rancid, thereby becoming unfit to drink or to be used to make butter, cheese, or anything else edible, end quote. That's this idea here that that, that the Holy Spirit is saying that we have together become unprofitable. Well, these words should shatter our imagined goodness. Because quite frankly, most of the world likes to 
to think that they are good. But God's assessment of us is that our lives are unprofitable and worthless. God has a different assessment of us, doesn't he? In other words, what God is saying is that our good deeds do not outweigh our bad deeds. How often do you hear people say, well, you know, there's this this big scale up in heaven, and God's going to put all my good works over here on this side of the scale, and my bad works on this side of the scale, and then when the scale goes, bing, all my good works will weigh more than the bad ones, and God will let me into heaven, and he'll love me. Oh, really? Is that God's assessment? No. All of our religious assets are consumed by the guilt of sin, the Bible says. Even the Apostle Paul once boasted in his own religious gains until God had to show him otherwise. (laughs) He showed him just how utterly worthless those things were that he was trusting in. Paul talks about this in in, uh, Philippians chapter 3. And, and when God finally showed him how utterly worthless those, the, that list of things that Paul was trusting in, he was glad to set aside those things in favor of Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul says. Look at this. Philippians 3, verses 4 through 9. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Look at this list. Here's his list. Number one, circumcised on the eighth day. Number two, of the people of Israel, number three, of the tribe of Benjamin, number four, a Hebrew of Hebrews, number five, as to the law of Pharisee, number six, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, number seven, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's an impressive list. That's a very impressive list. And he was trusting in that. But when he saw Christ, look what happens to his his impressions here. He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing value or the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Oh, that's a pretty high opinion, isn't it? <laughs> Paul's opinion of all of those things he's trusting is there. Rubbish. And look at this. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Do you stand with Paul? Or are you self-righteous? Are you trusting in other things besides Jesus Christ? Those other things are rubbish my friends. Don't trust in them. You need Christ and his righteousness. Well, the sixth indictment is that all people are radically corrupted. All people are radically corrupted. Look at verse 12, the last part of verse 12. There is none who does good, no, not one. There is none who does good. Now, that, that, those two words there, does good, refers to what is morally upright. Because I know immediately some start objecting to Scripture and say, well, wait a minute, there's plenty of unsaved people out there who are doing good things. Surely there's some unsaved people who can do good things. Well, this is talking about being morally upright here. Can you be morally upright without God? No, no, absolutely not. Measured by God's perfect standard of righteousness, the natural man has no ability to do anything that is upright 
and good. You cannot do that. Now, lest you miss the point of verses 9 through 12 here, let me remind you what we've just seen. Here's the big picture, okay? Let me sum it up for you. In case you've missed the big picture or the sum, here it is. So we've clearly seen that every human being is included in this exposure to sin. Everyone's been exposed to sin. We all have this, 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 this nature, this disease, if you will. We're all infected by sin. We are radically corrupted by sin. It is is universal. That's the picture. That's the picture that God wants you to understand in verses 9 through 12. Well, number two, second major truth we see in verses 13 through 18 is this, that indwelling sin is pervasive and deeply ingrained. Indwelling sin is pervasive and it's deeply ingrained into us. It's not just a superficial thing, but it's deeply ingrained. And the Holy Spirit proves this point to us by drawing attention to the things that we say and we do. Lest you sit here and argue with God and say, I'm a good person, and somehow you can earn your way to heaven. The Holy Spirit points out to us just how bad we are because of what we say and what we do, our behavior. Look at these things here, okay? There's your two main points under this heading. First of all, let's look at uh, this, this truth here that all people speak sinful words. All people speak sinful words. We see that in verses 13 through 14. And the, Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul here is, is still, by the way, quoting the Old Testament. And, and what is he doing? Remember, he's, he's piling up this evidence to, to prove the point that we're all sinners. We all stand before God condemned. We're all guilty. He's piling up the evidence. And notice these things he points out about our speech. Number one, mankind's speech is spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. Look at verse 13. Their throat is an open tomb. Now that's an interesting picture. Think of a tomb or a grave, if you will. I've given you a picture of one there. Lest you can't understand what the Bible is talking about there. This is a very expressive way of depicting for us the corruption of our speech. Picture your mouth here, okay? God's comparing your mouth to an open grave that's had a dead person in it for for a couple months. Or even a couple weeks. Picture that in the summertime. Just how bad that would smell, a dead body, after being out in the the heat for for a while, is going to really stink. And God is saying, that's the way we are. Our throat is open, like that open grave. The offensive stench coming from that open grave, by the way, it's not due to the grave itself. Because if you just had an open hole in the ground with no dead body in it, it's not going to stink. But the rottenness within that open grave is what stinks. And so it is with us. Our unclean, our unkind and untrue words betray a corrupted and depraved heart. Isn't that what the Bible says? Out of the abundance of our hearts, the mouth speaks. So why are our words so smelly? Why are our words so rotten? It's because of our hearts. Out of the abundance of our heart, the mouth speaks. So mankind's speech is spiritually dead. Number two, mankind's speech is deceitful. It's deceitful, and anybody who goes fishing does this here. Anybody who goes fishing does this. Look at verse 13. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. We all do this. 
And if you understand fishing, the science behind fishing, when you go fishing, what do you do? <laughs> you deceive when you go fishing, right? You purposely try to deceive the fish. That poor little innocent fishy. No, come on, please. Uh, it has the basic meaning here of luring, and it was used of baiting a hook by, what do you do when you bait a hook? You're, you're covering the hook up because you just drop the hook in the water. How many fish are you going to catch? Most fish aren't that stupid, are they? Most fish don't bite a bare hook and say, oh, that looks yummy, I'm going to eat that. No, they don't do that. You have to put something on the hook so the fish bites it, right? You deceive the fish. And that's the idea here, that man's kind speech is deceitful. We cover that hook up with some yummy piece of food, and you're, you're purposely doing that to disguise the danger of the hook. And so when a fish bites that food, he, he's thinking, hey, I'm going to get a meal out of this. Instead, what does he get? He becomes a meal for the fishermen. So how are we deceitful, you might ask? How are we deceitful? Well, you and I deceive through a flattery. We flatter people all the time, saying things to them that we don't really mean, and then we lie. We lie all the time telling things that aren't true. Or... So that's how we can deceive people. God's showing us that's what's in our heart. Number three, mankind's speech is poisonous. Mankind's speech is poisonous. Look at verse 13 again, the end. The poison of asps, that's a snake, is under their lips. Now, to help explain this to you, William Newell points out here, quote, the fangs of a deadly serpent lie ordinarily folded back in its upper jaw. But when it throws up its head to strike, those hollow fangs drop down, and when the serpent bites, the fangs press a sack of deadly poison hidden under its lips at the root, thus injecting the venom into the wound. You and I were born with moral poison sacks like this, end quote. So my friends, we need to be careful with our words. The Bible, God, is describing our words like a snake's venom. And we're striking at one another with our venomous words and inflicting that venom into one another. And it hurts. Number four, mankind's speech is full of curses and bitterness. Look at verse 14. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. The idea there of full has this idea of this is what characterizes our speech. This is something that is habitually coming out of our mouths. Curses and bitterness. Curses there, that word curses carries the idea of desiring the worst for a person. And making that desire public through open criticism and defamation. How often do we have defamation court cases? Often, don't we? And there should be a lot more, probably. Because we defame one another. We curse one another. Uh, there's also bitterness, as it says here. Bitterness was used to describe openly expressed emotional hostility against someone. God condemns us because of these things. And so, my friends, are you aware that your tongue is a vicious weapon? Your tongue is a vicious weapon, and it pierces people. And when you, when you send that tongue out and you are piercing people like a sword can do, you can't bring that back. Those wounds are permanent. So beware. Well, the second proof that the Holy Spirit uses here to show just how pervasive and deeply ingrained our indwelling sin is, is 
He shows us our behavior. All people have sinful behavior. All people have sinful behavior in verses 15 through 18. So it's not only what we say that's exposing us here to God's judgment, as if that's not bad enough, but it's also what we do. Our behavior is also horribly sinful. Well, what does the Bible say about our behavior? What does it say about what we do? Number one, mankind is murderous. Mankind is murderous. Look at verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. That describes our feet. That describes our ways, our habits of life. And it's significant, by the way, that the first recorded sin outside of the Garden of Eden was murder. It was murder. Remember, Cain murdered his brother Abel. That's the first recorded sin outside of the Garden of Eden in Genesis 4, verse 8. So mankind's corruption is seen in his rush to violence. We are a violent people. That, that summarizes history. You read history, you find that humanity is violent. Now to see it, all we have to do is watch the news. Just turn on the TV at 6 o'clock at nighttime. Watch the news and it won't take you long. And you will find violence, you will find murder, you'll find rape, you'll find incense. All kinds of things like that. Read the newspaper. Probably every newspaper that comes out, you will find some form of violence. Every week, something evil is taking place. In fact, Will Durant, in his book, Lessons from History, here's what he said, I quote, In the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 have seen no war. Most of human history is filled with war. We are a violent and murderous people. That is, that is who we are, and that's how God describes us. Well, I could talk about something that's deep on my own heart, because when I went to Europe, I, I actually went to a Nazi concentration camp. I went to one of the Nazi concentration camps, and to me, that was one of the most horrible experiences I've ever had in my life. I walked out of there literally... My, not, my, my stomach was in knots, and I was feeling sick, and I didn't feel like eating for the rest of the day. There was an eerie sensation in that Nazi concentration camp, as if, as if the souls of people inhabited this, this place and plagued the nation of Germany. Uh, there's, there's a lot you can read about uh, World War II. But God's indictment here is, is certainly not an exaggeration when you know history. And God's indictment is not outdated if you read recent history. Just read about the Nazis and their horrible war crimes. At the close of the Second World War, the Nazi war criminals, as many of you know, were brought to justice at Nuremberg. Very interesting, the the war crimes there. There was a man at the end of the trial, his name was Sir Hartley Shawcross. He summed up the crimes that were committed by the Nazis Crimes that were so frightful that the imagination staggers us at the thought of them. Here's just some of the things that he said. He spoke of the great cities which had been reduced to rubble, of the millions who had been left homeless and maimed and bereaved, and of the hunger and disease which stalked the world as a result of the war. He described how women and children had been taken from their homes to be treated worse than beasts, to be starved, beaten, and murdered. Describing the horrors of the extermination of the Jews and others, he told of the cynical melting down of gold teeth into bars for the Reich Bank. He told of many other things, such as the bailing 
of human hair for commercial purposes and of the flaying of human flesh for lampshades. He said mass murder was becoming a state industry with byproducts. It must, re, it must be remembered, he said, these crimes were committed by one of the most cultured and advanced nations on the face of the planet, Germany. So if for one moment you start to become a bit self-righteous and think, we're not murderous people, wrong, we are, we are, we are a murderous people. And it's easy for us to be complacent and self-righteous as we look at God's statement here. It's very easy for us to shift blame and say, you know, I've never done anything like that. I've never flayed anybody's skin and made a lampshade out of it. But that's not the point here, my friends. The point is, what is our heart like? Our human heart is heir to every imaginable crime that there is possible to commit. The Lord Jesus himself traced murder to the angry thought in Matthew chapter 5. Remember that? And so where that root is, it's only God's restraining grace that keeps us from committing that sin. We're all capable of committing the act of murder. And if we don't, it's only because of God's grace. So number two, mankind is destructive. Mankind is destructive. Look at verse 16. Destruction and misery are in their ways. Destruction and misery are in their ways. The, the word, those words there, destruction and misery, ESV uses the word ruin, NES uses the word destruction. It means the idea to break in pieces and to completely shatter, causing total devastation. The word misery is a general term that refers to the resulting harm that's always in the wake of man's acts of destruction against his fellow man. We leave destruction in our wake, God says. His destructiveness inevitably leaves a trail of pain and despair. That's what is in our wake. That's what we leave behind. Number three, mankind is peaceless. Mankind is peaceless. Look at verse 17. In the way of peace they have not known. We don't know peace. Because we don't know the God of peace. So praise God that there, there was some 2,000 years ago, there came to this world one who had many names, but one of his names, according to Isaiah 9, verse 6, was he is the, what? Prince of Peace. And so at his birth, the one who is the Prince of Peace, we, we see the angels chanted across those hills in Judah when he was born, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, good will toward men. Luke 2, verse 14. But what did the world do to the one who is the Prince of Peace? They crucified him. They nailed him to a tree. And ever since then, the world has known nothing but wars and rumors of wars. And will only know wars and rumors of wars until he comes again and finally brings peace. Number four, mankind is rebellious. Mankind is rebellious. Look at verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The world doesn't fear God. They don't fear God. The ESV Study Bible says this, quote, This citation, which is coming from Psalm 36, verse 1, identifies the root cause of sin as the failure to fear and honor God. 
any society that commonly assumes that God will not display sin in this life or judge it in the next will have no fear of God and will therefore give itself increasingly to evil, end quote. So what's our problem, my friends? According to the Bible, we ignore God. We ignore God. There is no fear of God before our eyes. And in many ways, we are practical atheists. Even we as Christians are practical atheists. We treat Him as if He doesn't exist. We look at things on TV we shouldn't look at. We look at things on the internet we shouldn't be looking at. We read magazines that we shouldn't read, or we go places we shouldn't go. And what are we doing when we do that? I'm not trying to be self-righteous, my friends, because I do those things myself. I go places I shouldn't go. I do things I shouldn't do. I look at things I shouldn't do. And when I'm doing that, I'm being a practical atheist. I am saying that God doesn't exist. That God is not seeing me do this. Heaven forbid. May God help us to fear him. May we treat him as if he does exist. Third major truth we see here in this passage, the Holy Spirit kind of sums it up for us here in the last two verses, that indwelling sin is to blame for our condition in our sentence of guilt. Indwelling sin is to blame for our condition in sentence of guilt. The Holy Spirit concludes the verdict here by showing that mankind's blame for his condition and, and showing, that, showing us God's sentence of guilt here. And to do this, how does the Holy Spirit do this? Now, this is interesting how he does this. To do it, he brings to bear the Mosaic law. Now, I think that's important because as take note of this. Because as we witness to people, the Mosaic law is helpful. Use it, my friends, as you witness. Use the Mosaic law to bring people's sin to bear before a holy God. First of all, we see here that mankind's condition is helpless. It's totally helpless. Look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Our condition is helpless. In fact, it says here that mankind is convicted of sin. You have been found guilty before the bar of God. And on what basis have we been convicted? What does it say here? Well, our conviction of sin stems from the violation of God's law. We violated God's law. You're guilty, he says. We're all lawbreakers. Take the Ten Commandments, for example. Lest you think I'm not a lawbreaker, lest you think you're not a lawbreaker, take, for example, the Ten Commandments. We've all broken every single one of them. We are idolaters, we are blasphemers, we are murderers, we're adulterers, we're thieves, we are liars, we're covetors, and we're more. We're all of those things and more. We've broken every single one of them. And so if you see yourself as God sees you, if you see yourself as Isaiah saw himself last week in Isaiah 6, then guess what's going to happen? You're going to certainly have nothing to say in your defense. You will do what verse 19 talks about. Every mouth will be stopped. Your mouth will be stopped. You'll be speechless. You'll stand guilty before a holy God, and you won't have anything in, in your defense. And what do you do? Well, you plead guilty and you beg for mercy. You plead guilty and you beg for mercy. And for those who take this position, I've got good news for you because mercy is extended to you when you plead for mercy. But to those who continue to argue with God, God will extend no mercy to you. 
Number two, mankind is found guilty by law. Found guilty by law. The Bible says there in verse 19, all the world may become guilty before God. Now one reason God gave the law to us, I mean as bad as it may seem to you, it shows us that we're guilty. It shows us that we're lost. We do not have to wait until we die to find out where we stand before God. You don't have to wait to to find out the the heavenly scales and which side you're going to fall on. You can know right now, and that's what verse 19 is talking about. What's the third word in your Bible there in verse 19? What's the third word? No. No. You can know, and you can know it right now. The word know there, verse 19, refers to knowledge that is certain and complete. You can know with certainty and completeness this truth that you have been found guilty by the law. Number two, we see here that mankind's case is hopeless. Look at verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So as bad as the law is, you can thank God and praise him for it. He knows what's best. He gives us the knowledge of sin. And so, my friends, if you're still clinging to hope, to the hope that somehow your good works are going to outweigh those bad works, then, my friend, you are deceived. You are deceived. You are about to bite the hook that has the bait on it that's hiding the hook. <laughs> and that's a vain hope. You and I are condemned by God's own code, and God's code is the law. And so even the best attempts... Even our best attempts, the Bible says, our righteousness is a what? Filthy rags. So our best attempts to please God by keeping his law are going to fail, and the law is going to expose that failure. In other words, I'm saying, my friends, we're hopeless. We have no chance of receiving a not guilty verdict before God's court. No chance. And you're sitting here, you might be sitting here thinking, well... If we're to be saved, what, how are we going to be saved? If we all stand before God's judgment and we're guilty, then what hope do we have? If we or anyone is to be saved, God must do the saving. And that is the Holy Spirit's next great theme in this epistle. And if you, my friend, are sitting here in despair at this moment and, and just wanting to hold on to some hope, let me give you hope because God gives it to us here. God gives us hope in the very next verses. Look at verse 21. Look at verse 21. Now, we don't have time to preach this, so let me just read it to you, okay? Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation. Propitiation is the idea He's a wrath absorber. Jesus has absorbed the wrath of God. He is our propitiation, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. 
Why? To demonstrate at the present time His righteousness. In other words, God wants to be glorified that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so verse 27 asks the question, where is boasting then? Who gets the glory in all of this? Do you? When you go to heaven, through your conversion, who gets the glory? Where's the boasting? Holy Spirit says it is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. You cannot be saved through the work, good works, my friends. Look at this, verse 29. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Let's end with verse 31. Do we then make void or empty or useless or worthless the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. And then Paul goes into a wonderful uh, sermon in chapter 4 on justification by faith alone. And we'll look at that later. Well, my friends, the best way to end this section here is just to ask a simple question of you. Has your mouth ever been stopped? Have you ever had your mouth stopped by the truth of Scripture? Are you boasting in your own self-righteousness and defending yourself before God? If so, then perhaps you have never been saved by God's grace. Because verse 9 says, let all mouths be stopped by this truth. This week I listened to a sermon by Jerry Bridges. The greatest enemy of the gospel is self-righteousness. And that is why Jesus continually harped on that truth to the Pharisees. Because that was the number one thing that stopped the Pharisees from becoming a Christian, was their self-righteousness. And we hold on to our self-righteousness thinking that's that's what's going to get us to heaven. No, my friends. And you might be sitting here thinking, no, I trust in Jesus But if you're trusting in Jesus and your self-righteousness, then that's not sufficient. That is not sufficient. It must be Christ alone and, and justification through faith alone in Christ alone, through grace alone. So it is only when we stand silent before him as sinners that he can save us. When we cry out to him as sinners who are hopeless, it's only then can he save us. And so as long as we go around defending ourselves and commending ourselves to one another and to God, we cannot be saved by God's grace. It's impossible. The Bible says that the whole world is guilty before God. We stand before him condemned as sinners. We have sin natures by birth. We're hopeless. And so, my friends, that includes you, and that includes me. So what are you trusting in? Has your mouth been stopped? Are you trusting in Christ alone, or are you trying to add something else to Christ? If you are, my friend, you are not saved. May today be the day of your salvation. For those of us who are Christians, let's continually preach the gospel to ourselves every day of our lives, trusting in Christ alone, recognizing, yes, we are sinners, but we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. 
May you trust in that, my friends, and in nothing else. Let's pray. Oh, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful truth that we are sinners. May you be glorified in this. May your name be exalted. May we not for one moment think that we can save ourselves, that we can get ourselves to heaven, that we can somehow change these, these dead, lifeless, stony hearts of ours to hearts that are alive. May we think of ourselves as you see us, as you have revealed us here in Romans 3. Father, may you be glorified in this horrible news that we've seen here, that we are sinners. Yes, may we see ourselves as you see us, but may it draw us to yourself. May you be glorified in this. May you be magnified, made to be look just as big as you really are. And may we see ourselves just as small as we really are. We see ourselves as sinful as we are, that we, are, we stand guilty, totally condemned with no hope of receiving the not guilty verdict before your court. Father, we cannot understand these things without you. Draw us to yourself. Grant us illumination by your grace. Open up our hearts and our minds to these truths. May all of my friends sitting here and anybody who listens to this on the internet, may they understand this truth. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd work in their hearts. Anyone who here is not saved, may they be saved today. Grant them illumination to see the truth and may the truth set them free. May we glory in this gospel. May we not be ashamed of this gospel, even though this world hates this truth of the gospel that we are sinners and the law condemns us. But may we preach it nonetheless. May we witness the truth that we are lost and we need a Savior and that Jesus is that Savior. And may we know this truth. May it set us free. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.